1: Welcome to Catholic Baltimore. I'm George Madisec, digital editor for the Archdiocese of Baltimore. This year, our nation commemorates the 400th anniversary of the arrival of African slaves in the Jamestown colony and the sad legacy of slavery. Later in today's show, we will speak with Sulpician Father Tom Allshafer, who has researched the connection between his religious community and slavery. But our first guest is Luke McCusker, managing director of the Irish Railroad Workers Museum in Baltimore. McCusker has researched the fascinating history of a Baltimore ship captain who once traded slaves, but donated money at the end of his life to support the training of Josephite priests who would minister to the African American community in the United States. Luke McCusker, thanks for being here on Catholic Baltimore. My pleasure. Anyone who has been by Saint Anne on Greenmount Avenue in Baltimore is inevitably seen that huge anchor that they have attached to the church there. It's a huge gold color anchor. It has a fascinating history about how it wound up on that wall. Could you tell us about the original owner of that anchor, Captain William Kennedy? Who was he?
2: I'd love to. William Kennedy was actually originally from the Philadelphia area. And from a really young age, he became adept at anything maritime and developed into a captain at at a very young age. And he spent uh, his earliest career for many years, though, out on the sea running ships, Uh, from the Baltimore-Philadelphia area down to Veracruz and back, carrying various cargo, uh, and continued doing very well with that. He was an ambitious guy, and it really paid off with a lot of maritime success for him. However, it wasn't without its problems. Part of what he did was encounter major storms at sea, and one of them was particularly treacherous, and his ship was tossed to and fro in dramatic ways. One of the two anchors that the ship had was lost at sea with only one anchor left he thought to himself well how am I going to survive this and so like so many of us when we reached one of those moments in life he called out to God and asked for his touch on the ship that that it would survive and that he would survive of course and made a promise he made a promise that if he would survive that he would build a church to the glory of God once he returned to America and that was his goal he held on to that anchor, and it always represented a commitment and a promise to God, to him, and eventually was placed in front of the church that he built, St. Anne's, uh, in, on Greenmount Avenue in Baltimore.
1: And that storm was in 1833,
2: right, off of Veracruz? It was. He was on the Wanderer, which was a ship that he was he was on. And and the anchor, It's it's interesting, when you go to the parish, even today, and one of the, the sort of the, the motto of the church is that the anchor still holds. Mm-hmm. So they as a congregation have picked up on the spirit of an anchor and it representing their church's uh, commitment to God and, God, of course, God's commitment to them. Uh, so it's a, it's a vital representation to them as a congregation, as it was to William Kennedy. Mm-hmm.
1: In researching this story, you've uncovered some interesting facts that I don't know that have been reported before. Could you talk about that, about what kind of cargo did Captain Kennedy carry?
2: Well, of course, down in that area in in Veracruz, Mexico, and the islands that he would pass to and fro, he would pick up and carry more traditional, everyday cargo, things like molasses and cotton, and travel with that sort of thing. But we did discover, as we did the research, that He also carried slaves on that ship and it was more for him than just he was a ship captain with a different sort of uh, uh, difficult cargo, hard to to fathom to us in the modern day, but he also was the owner of that cargo on one particular journey he took. Not only was he the captain of the ship, but he was the owner of that cargo and his cargo was human beings, African slaves that he was bringing to Baltimore. Hmm.
1: But by the end of his life, you can detect a, a change of heart because of
2: what, what he gave his money to at the end of the life? Right? Absolutely. He eventually became a mill owner in, Ham, in the Hamden area that many Baltimoreans were familiar with and, and lived a life working with cotton over all those years. But he was also a very active churchman. He was involved with St. John the Evangelist Church uh, in the old 10th Ward of Baltimore, just a few blocks from uh, IND, where it is presently. And while he was doing that, he was very active in the church. He, he had met, had many successes, but as he approached the end of life, he knew there was a promise that needed to be kept. He had a home right on Greenmount Avenue and decided, well, what could be more perfect than a home built just a very short distance from his own front door? And that's how the beginning of St. Anne's Church uh, happened. But it wasn't without many problems. During those last years, as he developed the momentum to build the church, he had, he had his own family problems. His mill burned. Uh, and it was a total loss at one point. His family uh, had much illness and there was death and there was despair. Even he became very sick in those days. But eventually, the church was built and, and right about that same time is when he passed away. Baltimore Sun lists his, uh, his will and where, where the assets went and there was many things that you might typically find in a wealthy man's estate. Uh, a certain amount of money left to help with the archbishop's residence. That was part of it. Of course of course, a large sum to build and complete the church but we also see that he left several thousand dollars to the Mill Hill Seminary outside of London where the Josephites were being trained actually to minister to the African-Americans of Baltimore um, and it's hard, to, it's hard to get your mind around that. Here is the former slave owner, uh, a slave shipper, who at the end of his life recognized these human beings as, as children of God, made in the image of God, and as a result he recognized that and wanted to do what he could to minister to them as people, as fellow Christians. And his, his mind must have really changed over those decades of his, of his life, viewing African Americans not merely as property, but as precious souls.
1: You mentioned the will, and in your research you showed that $50,000 was given toward the building of St. Anne, which I did, did a little research on that, and that's the equivalent of $1 million today. And then he gave 5000 to the Mill Hill Seminary, the Mill Hill College Seminary, and that's the equivalent of $107,000 today. So it's quite a commitment that he made.
2: Oh, it, yeah. cer- it certainly was. And as he as he made that commitment, it, a recent visit I had, I just w- would like to share with the audience that St. Anne's is a church, even today, that's focused and its ministry and its leadership are African-Americans committed to the gospel message and his legacy, I'm sure, is, has resulted in things far beyond what he could have imagined in those difficult last days of his life. So, uh, even today, uh, the, his transition from slaveholder to benefactor is manifest here at Saint Anne's Church.
1: Now, Saint Anne is actually pastored by the Josephites. It's part of pastor of a pastorate with uh, at Saint Anne, Saint Francis Xavier, and Saint Wenceslaus, which is even even more interesting. Oh, in
2: that in that wonderful story what a project you're, you're, you're thinking you're just finding I'm just looking for a famous Irishman you know uh, with my background and my interests so uh, the, the research to me was another Irish parish and what happened there but we, instead we, we find that of course but then we also find the uh, the transition of a man all from one side of the spectrum all the way to the other so it's it certainly is something to rejoice in and to reflect on where is Captain Kennedy buried today? He is buried in the church itself. Uh, there, him and some family members are there uh, under the floor, uh, you know, with a marble top, and his, his graves are marked, as are some of his relatives. And so we, um, we're glad that even today uh, he can be honored in that way and be in a place where his heart was and where his money went. So that's a good thing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what was your reaction when you made these discoveries? What was going through your mind as you made these connections?
2: I guess the biggest thing for me was the the transforming power of the gospel message in the life of a man who started off as merely a uh, ambitious fella doing what he could to make a living had all the abilities in the world but he had a problem he had a he had a heart problem and through the experiences of life and his uh, the, the ministries of, at St. John the Evangelist Church especially, uh, the gospel worked in his heart and mind, and he was transformed from not a person whose focus was on uh, taking advantage of the least of these, but instead he was a benefactor and an encourager uh, for the development of souls of these men and women. So uh, I just rejoice in knowing that that's, that was his experience. Mm.
1: You have about 10 seconds left. Could you tell us a little bit about where you work?
2: We'd love to have you come visit the Irish Railroad Workers Museum. We're just a stone's throw from the B&O Railroad Museum in West Baltimore. Uh, we welcome people of all all backgrounds, but we have a special care for those uh, with an Irish background and uh, those that experience parish life here in Baltimore. That's great.
1: Luke McCusker, thanks so much for being here on Catholic Baltimore. My pleasure. When we return, Salpician Father Tom Allshafer will join us to talk about his research on the connection between the Salpicians and slavery. For Catholic Baltimore, I'm George Matasek.
3: Do you want to know more about what's going on in the church and the world than you can get from your daily newspaper or local TV? Read the only publication in the Archdiocese of Baltimore that covers the church full-time, The Catholic Review. Pick up the print magazine monthly at your parish or have The Catholic Review delivered to your home every month. You can get fresh news every day online at catholicreview.org. Subscribe to The Catholic Review e-newsletter for twice-a-week updates. Just text Media to 84576. Find our app on Apple and Android. And follow The Catholic Review on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest. Wherever your faith takes you, Catholic Review Media is ready to inspire, teach, inform, and engage. Read it today, in print and online, at catholicreview.org. That's catholicreview.org. For
4: 143 years, New Cathedral Cemetery has served the needs of the Catholic community of Baltimore and Central Maryland. New Cathedral is the only cemetery owned by the Archdiocese of Baltimore and is the final resting place for many religious orders and famous citizens. 125 acres of rolling hills, trees, and beautiful monuments, the cemetery is an oasis of peace and tranquility and is located off Edmondson Avenue just outside of Catonsville. Visit us online at newcathedralcemetery.org, like us on Facebook at New Cathedral Cemetery Bonnie Bray, or call 410-566-7770. You are listening to Catholic
0: Baltimore on Talk Radio 680 WCBM.
1: Welcome back to Catholic Baltimore. I'm George Matasek. Sulpician Father Thomas Allshafer, the former provincial leader for the Baltimore-based U.S. province of Sulpicians, recently completed research on the connection between his religious community and slavery. We spoke to him via phone from his home in Delaware.
5: Father Allshafer, thanks for being here on Catholic Baltimore. I'm happy to talk to you. To begin, could you explain for our listeners who the Sulpicians are and how they wound up in Baltimore?
6: Yes, the Sulpicians are a community of diocesan priests, and we were founded in Paris in um, 1741 at the Parish of St. sulpice That's how we got our name, because we were originally the priests of the parish. So technically, we're called the priests of the Society of St. sulpice And our mission from the beginning was the education and formation of priests and those preparing to be priests. So originally we were involved in uh, developing seminaries during uh, after the Protestant Reformation and professionalizing, if you want to call it that, professionalizing the preparation of priests. So we and still do that today because we uh, were involved in seminaries, running seminaries around the world for bishops, and also doing continuing formation of priests. And that's actually how you came to Baltimore was through John
5: Carroll Bishop. John Carroll, inviting the Sulpicians in?
6: Right. Bishop Carroll, when he was appointed, uh, was told that uh, one of his tasks was to prepare uh, seminarians or to prepare priests to work in the United States. And um, he had no way of doing that because there were only a very few priests in the country at that time, and not many of them were well-educated, except perhaps those who had been members of the Jesuit community. And so, uh, at the same time, the Sulpicians were trying to escape the French Revolution, where they were being persecuted. They offered to him to start a seminary, and he accepted the their offer and invited them to come to Baltimore and, and start the first seminary in the United States. And that was St. Mary's Seminary, which still exists today? Right, right. It was originally down on Packer Street, down... Uh, between Paca and Pennsylvania Avenue downtown. And the original chapel is still there, as well as the home of uh, St.
5: Elizabeth Ann Seton. And the Sulpicians also worked in Emmitsburg, is that right, with the seminary
6: there, Mount St. Mary? Yes, the, uh, the Sulpicians uh, had a very difficult time was in the first uh, 20 years of finding uh, potential seminarians because there really were very, there was pr- practically no, um, there were no, originally no Catholic colleges where people could be prepared to go into the seminary. So um, we had started a program to prepare people to go into the seminary, and that program was moved up to Emmitsburg in 1809 and uh, became Mount St. Mary's Seminary, and uh, the South were there for a couple of decades after that.
5: And how did the Sulpicians begin ministering to the Haitian refugees who were in Baltimore?
6: Well, it's a little bit of a complicated story, but there was, a, as I understand it, a commercial tie between Baltimore and Haiti. Um, Haiti bought things uh, from merchants in Baltimore, and Baltimore imported things from Haiti. And so, when there was uh, the Haitian Revolution started in 1791, uh, the Slaves and former slaves revolted against their French colonial masters. Many Haitians came to Baltimore, just as they did that to New Orleans at that time to escape the revolution. And one of those um, people that—well, uh, let me back up. Uh, there was a by that time there was a suffician who was—I mean, there was a priest who was not yet a Sulpician who was in Baltimore and had ties to Haiti. And he began that mission. His name is Father Dubourg, Father Louis William Dubourg. He started working with Haitian servants and slaves and doing religious education for them. I think that was in 1795. He did it for about a year. And then um, he went on to other duties, and that was, his work was picked up uh, by um, Father John Tessier. Who um, for thirty years did the uh, religious education uh, of Haitian refugees and their uh, their families and their children and so forth in Baltimore, mm-hmm. and then eventually the chapel uh, in 1808 we built the chapel down at Packer Street, and the lower chapel became the sort of the, the Haitian parish. It became kind of like the uh, first African American parish in in uh, Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And the reason was because many of the Haitians, of course, spoke French, and the Sulpicians were from France. It was natural that they would um, they would gravitate toward uh, the French Sulpicians
5: down at Pack Street. You've done a lot of recent research into slavery as well. What is the connection with slavery and the Sulpicians?
6: I, I wrote a biography of Father Nago, who was the first superior in the U.S. I wrote that about five years ago. And I learned that while I was doing that, that Father Nago and also Father Tessier, whom I mentioned before, had gone out to purchase a slave in the 1790s. I didn't know much about that before then, so I realized that there was a a connection. Uh, Actually, they never were successful in purchasing that slave, but they went out to do it. I also learned through my work on Father Nago that the Sulpicians were in charge of uh, a plantation that had belonged to the the Jesuits at one time and had been loaned to them through the former Jesuits. And so for um, several years, the Sulpicians got the benefit from that plantation. And of course, in Maryland, in those days, if you had a plantation, you probably had slaves. Um, And so the Sulpicians were kind of... uh, Responsible for ever seeing the life of slaves up in uh, on a plantation up in Cecil County. How do you? And that's I, how I learned about it, and and you know, then I uh, decided to write an article to do some more, much more research on that. Father Kemper, our provincial, uh, was encouraging me to to really explore that once I started getting into it.
5: How do you account for that seeming dichotomy where, on the one hand, you have the Sulcetians ministering to black Catholics in Baltimore, yet on the other hand, they have this connection to slavery? That's a good question.
6: I struggle with it in my own mind. The way I understand it is that, on the one hand, Catholics, especially educated Catholics in those days, believed that they had responsibilities toward their slaves. The Catholic tradition was a little bit different from the British tradition um, in that regard, in that um, Catholics were encouraged to uh, respect the religious faith of their, of their slaves and to give them access to the sacraments, including matrimony, and uh, train them in the faith. So um, there was a sense that slaves... Had a kind of spiritual equality with uh, everybody else in, in the church. It goes back, of course, you know, to St. Paul. You know, where St. Paul asked the uh, who was a slave owner to receive his slave back. You know, not just as a slave, but uh, as a brother in Christ um, and as a fellow human being. And so, there would, from the beginning, the, I think the Philippians would have had an inclination to um, respect the religious faith and the religious needs of their slaves. The ambiguity is, of course, that didn't translate in their own mind into a respect for their um, political and, and uh, economic equality. So they, it's, a, it's a strange paradox that's hard for us to understand today, that they, they accepted in some way the, the institution of slavery as a socioeconomic fact, yet at the same time, they looked at slaves as having a right to certain basic uh, education, particularly in their faith. And, of course, they had to have other education in order to understand their faith. It's part also of the French tradition. I mean, these men, these Solpitians, who came over were Frenchmen. And um, in France, the, the law said that slave owners in the Caribbean colonies of France were expected to educate their enslaved workers in the faith and to respect their religious needs. And the Sulpicians carried that tradition, I think, over to uh, the slave society that was Maryland in the 18th century and Mm -hmm. followed that tradition. So it's hard to say that on one level that the Sulpicians were uh, racially prejudiced, but from our perspective today... Uh, They certainly were in the sense that they did not appreciate fully the equality of their slaves. They uh, limited it to the spiritual realm. We have about 30 seconds left,
5: and I know you're going to be speaking a lot more about this at a lecture at St. Mary's, the the Historic
6: Seminary on October 12th. Could you tell us about that? Yes, I've been invited to to come down and give a a presentation on October 12th on my research that I did in uh, preparation for an article that was just published in the U.S. Catholic Historian. So I have a PowerPoint presentation I put together, and I get into much more of the details of the uh, relation between the Fultacians and slavery in that that presentation. And that's at 2 p.m. on October 12th? Right. In the historic chapel down there that was the the lower part was the parish church for uh, a lot of people of color in the early 19th century. Well, Father Allshafer, thank you so much for being here on Catholic
5: Baltimore. You're quite welcome.
1: Once again, Father Allshafer's presentation will be given on October 12th at 2 p.m. at St. Mary's Seminary Chapel on Packer Street in Baltimore. For more information about that lecture, you can call 410-728-6464. Again, that phone number is 410-728-6464. For Catholic Baltimore, I'm George Matisek. Thanks for listening.
3: Child abuse is not only a crime, it's also a sin. The Archdiocese of Baltimore has long made the protection of children a leading priority in its parishes, schools, and other ministries. The Archdiocese seeks to keep kids safe through rigorous training and background checks and by implementing a zero tolerance policy for anyone credibly accused of abusing a child. For more information about the Archdiocese efforts to keep our children safe, please visit www.archbalt.org.
7: Life can be hard and at times we feel overwhelmed and alone. When faced with problems, know that there is a group of Catholics who are part of the prayer ministry of the Archdiocese of Baltimore, waiting to lift you and your needs to God in prayer. This ministry is comprised of men and women, young and old, religious and lay, from every ethnic and cultural background. They pray as individuals and in groups, in homes and meeting spaces throughout Baltimore. Like you, they are people who have suffered the same hurts, fears, pains, sickness, loss, and everyday burdens. Learn more about this ministry by visiting our website at www.archbalt.org. If you are in need of prayer, send your prayer request to prayers at archbalt.org or by phone to 410-547-5517. Would you like to volunteer to be a part of the ministry? Prayer ministers are always needed. Please call or email our coordinator, who would be happy to speak with you.
0: Thank you for joining us for this edition of Catholic Baltimore.